Appalachia. Nobody truly knows where the word comes from, yet everybody has their own opinion of what it represents. Everything from mountaintop beauty and deep forest to meth heads and extreme prejudice. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world. They once towered 30,000 feet to the air and currently stretch from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. The inhabitants of these mountains through the many years of their existence have lived through and witnessed downright unbelievable and tormenting historical atrocities. They have lived through everything from hauntings to cryptic creatures that show up and wreak havoc on their homesteads. The worst creature, though, may be man himself. I, being born and raised in these Appalachian Mountains, know that nothing is beyond a pale of belief, no matter how fantastic it sounds. The history that lies in these mountains is rich and has a long legacy of unending tales and adventures. Come with me as I take you on a fantastic journey through these mountains, where things are not always as they seem. I guarantee you it won't be anything like you expected. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley, and this is Season 2 of Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. Howdy, my good friends. Welcome back. As always, thank you so much for stopping by and giving us a listen. There's a whole lot of misconceptions and exaggerations tied to the folks here in Appalachia. Heck, I could do a show on where all of that started and where it came from and heck I might still yet do it because it's a pretty interesting story but today I'm going to talk about the time of the American Civil War probably the biggest misconception about Appalachia at this time was that and pretty much prevalent still today is that we hillbillies jumped on the confederate train and still to this day refused to get off of it We are depicted in movies, books, drawings, and even pictures as running around the mountains wearing Confederate battle keppies, firing guns into the air, and often at each other, all the while yelling at the top of our lungs, the South's gonna rise again. As you'll see, as the story unfolds, nothing in the world could be more wrong. And yes, folks, every bit of it's true. So grab you up in a cold drink and have a sit down and let me tell you a story that illustrates how it really was in Appalachian Mountains during the Civil War. Now folks, the whole idea of war started with the southern aristocrat plantation owners who kind of saw themselves as medieval knights and not so shining armor steeped in chivalry, but considered themselves to be way more ruthless than any knight that ever lived. They had great contempt for folks who didn't see things their way. We've all seen the movies that depict local governments meeting where the disagreements and get a bit physical, but in reality across the South, things were quite a bit different. Most towns, counties, and areas were ran by what we know as the boss system. I went over that that system in the Battle of Athens, Tennessee episode. It, that pretty much meant that the bosses, as they were known, held a lock on positions from U.S. Senator all the way down to the sheriff. Justices of the peace, for the most part, held their positions for life and doled out the law as they saw fit, regardless of what was actually written in the law books. And 
There wasn't all. Their senators blocked infrastructure bills, school funding, along with any type of means to stop slavery. They would make sure that any funding they meted out went to whoever they thought deserved it, and only those they thought deserved it, and by golly, nobody else. Those <clears throat> southern aristocrat plantation owners held a particular contempt for people of color. They saw them as subhuman and property to be owned or somebody to just walk out and massacre. Slavery in Appalachia was next to non-existent. This came to the attention of the plantation owners as they vacationed in the mountains on property that they had pretty much just taken away from the Appalachian mountaineers through hook and crook with the boss system of government. So it was all nice and legal, of course. The fact that the mountaineers had the gall to actually complain while not even being slave owners themselves, won them a status equal to that of the people of color. Now, with the poor mountaineers who were driven to the edge of starvation by this type of thing, formed a pretty good contempt for the aristocrat plantation owner and slave-owning societies themselves. After all, in most cases, the mountaineers who had farmed these mountain communities or formed them and been farming them for years generations in fact were revolutionary war veterans who actually were given the land for serving in the war to start with they saw themselves as citizens of the united states rather than the states they lived in they knew that the local governments were corrupt so they pretty much just cut that whole mess right out of their lives stayed in the mountains and did what we call to this day buried their own that means that you take care of each other in your community as you would family if there was any crime or problems of that sort, the community would take care of it, leaving the government out of it. But no matter how hard you try, when war comes knocking, it's huh, going to affect everybody. So in Madison County, North Carolina, the split between the mountaineers and aristocrats turned pretty bloody after secession of the southern states ever happened, in fact. On the very day local folks were voting on the question of secession in the town in the town of Marshall, which is in Madison County, the sheriff, appointed through the boss system, of course, had had himself a drink or twelve, showed up to the polling place and staggered inside to announce that he'd personally be killing any Lincolnites that showed up to vote against secession. Lincolnite was a term used by the Southern aristocrat to identify Union supporters. The mountaineers were all aware of the state of North Carolina was holding a vote on secession and decided to vote in the election in order to head off a possible war as most of them now living had heard stories of the forefathers and knew what was coming and knew what wasn't no good. Well, after the good sheriff made his announcement to the crowd, somebody had the gall to mutter a pro-union slogan. The sheriff, making like quick draw McGraw, whipped out his pistol and shot a mountaineer's son. The father shot the drunken sheriff dead on the spot. He immediately ran off and joined a Union regiment. Wouldn't you know it, in the end, Madison County voted against secession, along with many other counties across the southern states. Didn't matter, though. With an aristocratic governor named Zebulon Vance, North Carolina seceded from the Union anyway. From the very beginning, the Confederacy had areas of firm support right beside places that actively resisted them. Opposition was very intense in the Appalachian Mountains. 
but it also spread through the hill country of Texas and the free state of Jones in southern Missouri. A Mennonite and Quaker communities throughout North Carolina and Virginia as well. Now, being all filled up with chivalry and all, the new Confederate government would respond to all of these with massacre and repression tactics, or as it was known today, terrorism. Over 100,000 Southerners would officially fight for the Union. Thousands of Southerners, including Appalachians, were willing to fight and die for the Union. Their forefathers had fought and died for in the Revolution. But there was an initial surge of volunteers for the Confederacy. Rather than being sent off to fight for the Union armies in other battlefields, regiments like the 64th North Carolina were kept closer to home. They were brutal men who left that or felt outnumbered and knew the terrain and headed their Lincoln night neighbor. Now, once secession became official in 1862, that's right, they were fighting before it was even official, the whole area boiled over in war. While aristocrat plantation owners and workers, you know, the ones who fancied themselves as chivalrous knights, were exempt from the war, of course. The area's mountain farmers weren't, and the Confederate draft dragged off all the manpower that they needed to survive on a farm. This stunt made the Confederate Army look pretty big and fat at first. That until the 64th North Carolina Regiment split between those attached to the Confederate cause and those who'd been forced to into the war and didn't want any part of it. The mountain farmers deserted just as fast as they could find a way out, only to end up fighting anyway and against the very regiment that they'd left behind. As 1862 wore on, Confederate troops battled the Union insurgents near Shelton Laurel, North Carolina, also in Madison County, just north of Marshall, and ran recon expeditions into the area, leaving one general convinced that the whole population is openly hostile to our cause, and all who are able to serve under our arms, they took up arms against us. That's when bushwhacking, as it was uh, known, started without the organization or firepower of the Confederate Army. Unionists turned to the sniping <clears throat> and assassination. In 1861, Lieutenant Colonel James Keith, who was one of the leaders of the 64th Regiment, had his nephew, who in fact just joined the 64th, taken down by a sniper's bullet. As manpower shortages hit, desertions went through the roof, and Union armies marched closer. Confederate forces resorted to a war of starvation. By golly, if these tough, stubborn Appalachians won't knuckle under, we'll just starve them out, I guess is what they thought. So during the winter of 1863, there was, it was, which was so bad that their own soldiers suffered frostbite, the, as it was known by the Appalachians, secessionist regime decided to use an underhanded type of starvation. They realized that salt was the key to survival. I can't stress enough the value of salt in these times, folks. They used it to preserve meat and food because they just didn't have refrigeration then, even though it was freezing outside. The Confederates gathered up all the local salt supply, or what there was of it, being that it was rationed due to the war and all, like they weren't even going to make it anymore. That hit the mountaineers where they lived, causing them to nearly starve to death. 
As one general said, that's the whole point. Starve them to death. Chivalrous, don't you think, folks? Finally, with their backs against the wall of starvation, the Appalachian guerrillas rode on Jan- January 8th on a raid to Marshall, which the <clears throat> by the way is the, in Madison County and in Madison County seat. They shot the captain who was guarding the salt supply, who just happened to be a relative of the 64th commander, Colonel Lawrence Allen. They seized salt and food. They looted homes in the Confederate stronghold, particularly targeting uh, well, Colonel Allen's own home. And in the process, they intimidated his family. Of course, that goes without saying. After all, he was one of these chivalrous aristocrats that caused the war to start with and then fancied himself to be under authority of the Almighty enough to ex- unexempt himself from fighting to take up arms against the Union. I guess he was a do-it-yourself kind of guy and wanted to make sure it got done right. <clears throat> it just so happened that two of Colonel Allen's children were sick with fever and, as often happened back then, they died shortly after the raid. At the time of the raid, the 64th was across the state line guarding salt supplies in Tennessee trying to hold down Confederate rule. Well, that's where another pack of wild Appalachians are being a pain in the rear. But the 64th Colonel Allen and Lieutenant Colonel Keith, who were cousins that had been raised together, and yes, Lieutenant Colonel Keith was another aristocrat that unexempted himself to fight in the war, took the whole thing personally. And that was before Colonel Allen's children had died, so you can imagine how mad he was when that happened. In response to the Marshal raid, General W.G.M. Davis, the local commander, proposed in a letter that Governor Vance, or to Governor Vance, that he double down on the starving until the whole population dropped over. General Davis added that he would provide transportation for them and to the Kentucky state line where he would drop them off if they'd just quit and leave. The good governor was fine with starving them out, but suggested that the women and children be left behind and held as hostage. Just days after the Marshall raid, the 64th North Carolina sought and received permission to go back to North Carolina and take their revenge. And they knew just exactly where to go. By late January, two columns of Confederate soldiers made their way to the what is now known as Bloody Madison from all the fighting. They were headed to the Shelton Laurel Valley. Shelton Laurel was the close-knit, dirt poor, and fiercely unionist community just north of Marshall that had provided safe haven to U.S. Army recruiters and bands of uh, resistors in the past, including deserters from the 64th. General Henry Heth, another unexempted aristocrat, had wanted to be bothered with any prisoners from the battle. The 64th had been slowly picked away as the war ground on, leaving what was left of them more bitter than ever. The 64th was uh, about 200 or so strong at this point. I'll be right back. You're listening to Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend. This is about to get good, folks. Folks, the soldiers didn't need much encouragement as Colonel Allen led a column into the valley while Lieutenant <clears throat> Colonel Keith led another column and from the top of the mountain near the trail. Some of the locals skirmished with Colonel Allen's troops at a farmhouse, but the soldiers broke through and killed the defenders, but 
It cost them six men in the process. The already bitter men of the 64th were now enraged. They then set out for revenge by torturing the elderly women they found. At least that's where it started. The women were dragged out by the hair of the head, whipped bloody, repeatedly beaten with gun stocks, and then hanged from a tree. The soldiers just left the poor elderly ladies hanging there, twitching for breath, while they ran down a younger woman and her baby. They, uh, she was then tied to a tree in the snow with her poor baby was put on the doorway of the cabin in the freezing snow. That's chivalry for you. Colonel Allen was determined that one of these women were going to tell him where the men who were responsible for the raid on Marshall were. The women never told him nothing. They either couldn't tell him because they didn't know, or which is probably very likely, or didn't want him <clears throat> killing them all. Because without men back then, they just didn't have the strength to do anything. They're all tied up to the house with the children. So the poor women hanging in the trees did survive, but barely. They were able to finally work themselves loose and help each other down while the 64th were killing livestock, burning houses, and ransacking businesses. It was right in the middle of that pitiful sight that Colonel Allen received the news that his children had passed. So he left his troops for the evening to go bury him before he came right back. I reckon those poor folks are going to have to pay for that too because as they <clears throat> lowered his children into their graves, he stood by his wife and swore vengeance for the death of his children that he claimed were caused by the bushwhackers. Seems to me that if his children were sick that the chivalrous thing to do would be by their side trying to help them. I guess his bloodthirst outweighed everything else. The man might not have actually been a complete maniac, but he sure knew how to portray one for history, didn't he? The 64th scoured the terrain. Some of the scattered locals they found were dragged off to jail. Didn't matter if they did anything or not, the boss system would handle them. They eventually laid hands on 15 men today, for some reason or no, for some reason or another, had thought it took part in the raid. The commanders promised that they'd be taken to Tennessee for trial. The 64th remained in the valley for a few more days, attempting to ferret out more of the bushwhackers, and in that time, two other captives escaped. They were held at the home of a kind-hearted elderly lady named Judy Shelton. All of the local folks knew her as either Granny Judy or Auntie Judy. It is said that she took really good care of these men while they were there and may have actually facilitated the escape of the two men. Finally, after realizing that the longer they sat there, the more the men would have the chance to get away, you know, those doggone slippery hillbillies, Lieutenant <clears throat> Colonel Keith claimed that they were starting to march to Knoxville. Knowing what we know so far, folks, I'll just bet you that the 13 remaining men, ranging in age from 13 to 60, weren't going to jail over the state line or anywhere else. Remember, General Heth didn't want to deal with any prisoners. Now, Lieutenant Colonel Keith marched them a couple of miles to a rocky bend in the mountain's ridge line, a familiar place to the mountain folk that resembled an amphitheater, a place where every mountaineer nearby in the hills could see what was about to happen, and gave the order to kill them all. An elderly mountaineer begged that they let him at least pray before he was shot, <clears throat> but he was shot almost as soon as he asked. Then five more were told to kneel in front of the soldiers who were then ordered to fire. 
The soldiers hesitated. That's when Colonel Keith warned them that they'd better fire or they'll find themselves take in the place of the captives. So they complied, complied with the volley of shot that left five men dead. The reason that they hesitated was that one of the prisoners wouldn't stop smiling at them. It was later learned that he was a mentally handicapped man. After the first five, and one of those had to be finished off with a pistol shot to the head, another five were dragged out and shot. A 13-year-old boy who had been shot in both arms because apparently these guys were quite the snipers begged him to let him live as he tried to crawl away from the place he was, he was shot. They yanked him up, dragged him back, and shot him six more times for his trouble. The 64th then chipped out a hollow dip in the frozen ground and threw the dirt over top of the bodies. A few so soldiers even danced a jig on top of what could barely be called a mass grave as the arms and legs of their victims stuck out of the dirt. As the next day <clears throat> rose on a devastated Appalachian community, the remaining residents, led by Granny Judy, came out to collect the bodies and found that wild hogs had already chewed pieces of them away. They took them away to be properly buried nearby. The men of the 64th might have hesitated on that one, but the soldiers went about their business of hunting down Lincolnites in the days following the massacre. Now, the response of Governor Vance and General Davis was pretty much these hillbillies got what was coming to them, and the tactics seemed to have worked, so well, let's step it up a notch or 12 and starve, burn, kill, and end all of them. That was until the story made national news, and the news didn't see it that way. They actually called for the Unionists in Madison County to rise up and wipe out every Confederate they came across. As the political blowback started, let it not be said that uh, Governor Vance didn't also blow because he did a complete 180 on the issue and feigned ignorance and outrage to it all. He sent the state attorney general, Augustus Merriman, down to Marshall to get to the bottom of it all. Before long, he was writing a letter back to the governor stating that Lieutenant Colonel James Keith ought to be tried for 13 counts of murder. This after Keith had provided proof that he was following the orders of General Heth. I expect it was about this time that Keith caught his reflection in something, and maybe when he was bending over to get a drink of water or something, and figured out that he looked a whole lot like a goat, a scapegoat, because he resigned his command and ran for it. Governor Vance, now mad as a one-legged man in a butt-kicking contest, because not only had Keith took off, General Heth was promoted to Major General and went off to ride alongside Robert E. Lee. But don't worry, folks, General Heth got his at Gettysburg when his major blunder caused irreparable damage to the Confederation and started to slide toward the final surrender in 1864. I mean, sorry, 1865. Governor Vance decided that he would take what he could and get the court-martialed of Colonel Allen for the massacre of 13 people. So Colonel Allen was suspended from the military for six months for his crime. He claimed that the killings were a necessity of war. Lieutenant Colonel Keith was finally ferreted out by the Union Army and dragged off to a POW camp where he spent nearly three years. After his release, 
he went to a farm in Arkansas and never returned to Madison County for fear that of retaliation by the local Appalachians who have long memories. Even today, there are differences in opinion among the descendants of these those killed in the, <clears throat> and in the members of the 64th Regiment that you'll hear if you're in Shelton Laurel Valley, the descendants of both sides there. So when you hear folks start spouting knowledge about Appalachians that you know to be outright fabrications, you can either straighten them out or well, you can take it all well with a grain of the most valuable salt. I hope you got something out of our store today. Things ain't always what they seem. If you did, please rate and review the podcast and don't forget to follow. Please join us on Facebook group Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend podcast where we can discuss everything Appalachian or whatever else you'd like to talk about. And I'll be back real soon with another Appalachian Murder Mystery or Legend and I will see you then. <laughs>